I'm calling this word, glorify God in your body and in your spirit. That's straight out of the scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. But I want to read from the Gospel of John, starting from chapter 13, where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples and they have the Last Supper. Jesus then begins to speak to his disciples. He begins to prepare them for the kingdom that was to come. He says things that seemed like riddles to them, like I'll be living in you and you'll be living in me and the Father and I will be, make a home in you and I go to prepare a place for you. And he could see they couldn't understand it. And he said, look, and I'm also sending the Holy Spirit and he'll make all these things clear to you and he will lead you into all truth concerning these things. But they were powerful words, astounding scriptures. And then in chapter 18, after the supper, he went into the garden where he was betrayed by Judas and then arrested. But the words from John 17 are astounding. They're a prayer of Jesus to his Father concerning the glory of God that will be seen through them and through all of those that follow them that truly believe in the indwelling presence of Jesus. So glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So I'm going to read a little of that prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's a remarkable scripture. And that's a promise to them and to us. And it tells us that we've been given a share of the glory of God that was given to Jesus. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them. Now this glory of God is exhibited, as the scripture said, by our oneness with God and our unity with one another so that the world will know that Jesus was sent into the world by the Father. The glory of God is the outward expression of the awe and wonder of an unseen God who dwells within us as we consciously dwell within him. It is a two-way thing. That scripture is very clear about that. The glory of God is there waiting to be displayed. That is God on display as he dwells in us. It comes from the inside of him. But then through the outside, the body, for those that are also dwelling in him, so he dwells in them, something shines through. Jesus is praying that we'll see the glory of God at work in our lives. We'll see ourselves being present with him where he is. That's an interesting scripture. 
Those that you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Well, where is he? Well, he's with him. But we'll be present with him where he is in his resurrected human form. That's where he is as well. He's bringing that into the within, within us. And at the same time, he's where we are in our day-to-day circumstances, no matter what they are, waiting to shine through. When we take hold of that fact by our faith, we can go through any trial or tribulation because he is with us, comforting, encouraging, strengthening and empowering. That's the Christian life. Paul tells us that our spirit carries the inner glory of God as we acknowledge that we are joined in one spirit to his spirit and that our bodies are the outward expression of that inner glory. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit. But to God, there's got to be some vehicle that can be seen outwardly, but the work is done inwardly. I'll read that scripture that I mentioned, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now God does the supernatural work. He brings his will to pass in our inner lives. And as we're watching, as we're waiting, and as we're acknowledging that, that he's there reordering everything, because that's what his kingdom does, brings the new order of everything, day by day, moment by moment. So we make ourselves available for him to express himself in our outer bodily lives. And that's done in a simple and often very ordinary and unspectacular manner. He doesn't give us his glory for us to take any outer glory for ourselves but he can be glorified through us. It's not a matter of our physical appearance, thank goodness, (laughs) or our performance. We might be young and energetic or elderly and frail. That day will come to us one day. Educated or uneducated, glamorous or plain, rich or poor. It doesn't matter. All he needs in us is a yielded heart to express the power of the love and wisdom that he wishes to bring about in our world where we live. Father, glorify them. Let them have the glory that you gave me. Let something happen where they are, because I'll be there with them. Now, the Bible tells us that Jesus did not have a spectacular physical appearance that drew people to him as some kind of a celebrity. So, what? Did he look like an ordinary looking person? Let me read what the Bible says from Isaiah 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no stateliness about him and he was not suave or handsome that we should want to stare at him. And he had no appeal that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, 
and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was shunned, and we did not highly regard him. That's the most glorious person that ever came onto the planet. Jesus came to embody the nature of the Godhead and to glorify God in his body and not to impress the world with success or celebrity status. In John 17 verse 4, I read from John 17 before, Jesus says to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's a statement about Jesus. God's placed something on your life before you existed. Now, Jesus saw the eternal glory that awaited him. And he knew that whatever his body looked like or how well it could physically perform, it was sufficient to fulfil the will of his Father and glorify him. In this earth, not just in heaven. Jesus said, we read it in Hebrews chapter 10, a body you've prepared for me. Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. You've got a body, you're going to glorify yourself through this body. How? Well, what's in your heart? What's your will surrendered to? Well, I've come to do your will, O Lord. And he says, okay, here we go. Jesus knew that his body was there to embody God's purpose. And that gave everything that happened in his body its true meaning. And it might all not be happy going. The tough times. Times of trial. Paul understood this reality concerning his own body and that all that mattered to him was who he was in Christ. He knew his body was simply a vessel to express the inner glory of God through him. And he held his body together as best he could to have that purpose achieved by God. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, I discipline my body and bring it under control just in case that after preaching to others, I should end up letting God down. So he did his best with his body. But he was also very aware of his physical infirmities and ailments, and he knew that he had no glamour to impress the crowd. In fact, he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is contemptible. It's a little self-assessment by Paul. He was reading the room, as they say. <laughs> he knew what was coming back. He didn't care one bit about that. Paul knew that no matter what his physical limitations were, what he looked like, he just had to be there doing his best and letting God do the rest. He had a gospel of grace. He also knew that the church people sometimes derisively compared him to other self-appointed apostles and thought of him as a bit of a loser. But he told them he wasn't going to compete or compare himself with them. His last word on the matter was, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. 
Now, Paul knew that outward appearances could be deceptive. What looks strong on the outside may be pathetic on the inside. And what looks feeble on the outside may be strong and durable on the inside. And I've seen that in people's lives. Living creatures of many, many species, you would have seen this in the animal shows, do their best to glamorise the outside, to make it look bigger than it is, push up all these feathers or bristles around their face to scare other animals off in, in a defensive mode. And sometimes they do it to look attractive, not just to look tough. Think of pufferfish and peacocks. I mean, this is the outer thing, wanting to be on display. It's, it's, it's something about living creatures like to get the outward drawing the attention. It's part of being a human being. Now, it was around 300 years after Paul's ministry that the church began to glorify the outward appearance of things in just about every aspect of Christian practice. The early church prior to that time was not interested in worldly power or influence. There were no genuine apostles or prophets that held celebrity status or that lavishly enriched themselves as ministers of the gospel. It just didn't happen. But then the Emperor Constantine declared himself as being a Christian and made Christianity the main religion of Rome. And he created Constantinople, which became the most powerful city in the world. And from that point on, over the next few centuries, Christianity began to take on the status of Christendom. And in many ways it resembled a worldly Christian kingdom, and still does actually. And outward power replaced inner strength. However, the heart of Christianity has remained alive and well all through that time. The inner life of God's church, God's people, has not faded away. And devoted men and women up to this day give themselves spirit, soul and body to live their lives to glorify God through Jesus Christ and to bless millions upon millions of people and that has happened over the centuries. You can't put the fire out on, it's on the inside. It may not appear in great splendour but it's been there and it's still there. The glory of God is there within God's people. Now, we might be living in the times when the Holy Spirit is calling people back into the kind of inner focus upon the glory of God that can dwell within us and be expressed through us, no matter how impressive or unimpressive or weak we may appear on the outside. We may be living in the times when Jesus, as head over the church, is calling forth his bride company to be ready for him with hearts that respond to his love and that wish to spend more time in his presence, just to be with him. There is a bride company in the earth. It's all over the world. And you know what? It's totally invisible. It's, got no, it's, it's not a group that calls it, we are the bride company church. We meet every fourth Sunday or something. No, the bride is there, hidden all around the world in the church, in love with God, 
We might be living in the times once again when the Father is speaking to us as beloved brothers and sisters of his Son, Jesus, to express his glory through his body, the church, the body of Christ. Glorify God in your body. Well, there's a body that God would like to bring his display of love and forgiveness and compassion and unity, the unity of love of God, changing the world around those that live within that. Does the church, as the body of Christ, glorify God and reflect the nature of God in love and unity? And is the church salt and light in the world? The church once was all of those things, and I believe it is still all of those things waiting to appear again. It's never stopped. It's always been there. And the logical way for the corporate expression of God's glory through his body in the earth is for those individuals who call themselves church to personally live in a new way of life in Christ that offers hope for people, the people around them, people in the world, to live a new kind of human life that is not prey to the vengeful and unforgiving patterns of this world that we see around us today that destroy the human soul. People don't want to live in that. But there is something that is emerging within God's people that is there to overcome that and offer hope. When Paul wrote to the churches that made up the church, he taught them pastorally as individuals. He was a teacher and a pastor as well as an apostle. He taught them as individuals with a personal responsibility to reflect the glory of God in their own bodies. He didn't say, I want this church here in Corinth, I want that church to be the group that reflects the glory of God. You can't do it and say the whole group's got to do it. You have to speak to each individual heart and they have to one-on-one -on -one respond to God. That's the way the gospel works. You don't anoint a tribe. Not these days. And that personal response to God, to glorify God in, in, their, in their bodies, would translate into a corporate expression of the glory of God in the body of Christ. Now, wherever that's found to be. So, yes, there can be a corporate expression, but you don't organise that. Each person releases that. And in their unity in the spirit with one another, something shines with a dimension that glorifies the body of Christ. In Paul's apostolic capacity, he addressed the church corporately, not with the business of getting political influence or being as powerful as the world or impressing them, but with the same spiritual issues of love and forgiveness and unity. That's what he said to the church today. His words to the church in Rome stated this, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And when you look at that word spiritual worship, or those two words, in the Greek it is logikos latreia, which means which is your logical service. Present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice, acceptable to God, set apart. That is the logical way to serve God. That's what he's saying. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He taught them of the inner spiritual pathway of spending valuable time with God and in his word that leads to the finding of the true eternal self. We live in the forgiveness and the mercy of God. We come boldly to that throne of grace and we find grace. And the true eternal self created in eternity starts to activate by faith that grace, that enabling power of God to lift a person above the constraints of what the world would say are impossible. Nothing's impossible with God when his grace is flowing. Every other law is abrogated. Natural laws are overturned when the grace of God operates. Emotional, psychological laws are overturned. People can just come out of a place of being crushed into a place of being given a broad space in their hearts to love and forgive, transformation. So as that true identity of being one in spirit with the Lord begins to take shape in a person's life, they begin to grow in faith, in that mercy and grace of God, and it's freely available. Sometimes you see God shining through as they grow in confidence of who they really are in God. The aha, this is who I am in Christ, and he is in me. And what they really believe, they grow in the anchor of their hope of what they really believe concerning his power to reorder and transform a person's soul. Is there anybody that you're praying for right now that you know and you love and you would love to see their heart transformed, their soul reordered? Put that in prayer to the Lord. But as you're doing it, know that you are where he is and he is where you are in that circumstance and your faith is telling you that he is at work on that situation to bring his will, that is how he reorders things, to bear into that situation. It will still mean that that one you're praying for, as you see, when grace comes to a person, that is the empowering, but a person also has to say, I choose to accept that. And even after they've accepted it and say, right, I've got it, then they've got to hang on to it. So don't stop praying and don't stop believing because as you pray, you know that God's at work. You stay in that. And you see them as beloved of God, forgiven them, and then you see the awakening in their eyes. We're here for that kind of prayer. But it's God doing the work. We mightn't feel like praying. We might feel too fatigued and tired. Well, just let a glimmer of you're there, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You're doing that now. And God says, you rest and don't you worry. I'm doing the best that can be done because that's who God is. So people who begin to grow in this kind of confidence know that they've been presented to God as holy and acceptable to him. They've become more available to influence and overcome the artificial imaginations and ideologies and hollow power structures that abound in the world around them. Walk right through them with your faith. They vanish. I'm seeing power structures of all kinds of dimensions of nature, whether they're church or religious. or I'm just seeing them vanish and shrivel up into nothing. A big non-event 
There are lots of big non-events happening at the moment, <laughs> politically, that held great promise. We shall overcome. And oh, Well, I don't know what that was all about. But there are lots of non-events happening and God is allowing non-events because he knows his grace outshines all of that. So that is the only logical way, logical way to serve. This is your logical service. For the corporate expression of the body of Christ to emerge out of a multitude of singular gleams of light that glorify God in the earth. So I just want to say today, be a gleam in Jesus' name. Amen.